there is a very masculine style in Soto Zen anyway, and I picked it up. It's just like when you study choreography, when you study a piece of choreography with a, a, a dance teacher, sometimes a, the choreography is very natural for you. It's just like it fits your body and your spirit and everything. And sometimes a piece of choreography, you can do it and you can learn it and it's very interesting, but it doesn't come naturally. And I sort of feel like the, the choreography of Soto Zen is not a natural choreography for women. Not just, not just the actual physical forms, but the spirit. Reverend Tejo Munich is the founder and Dharma teacher for the Great Tree Zen Women's Temple, the Zen Center of Asheville, and she is the Dharma teacher for the Charlotte Zen Meditation Society. Tejo studied with Dainin Katagiri Roshi from 1975 until his death in 1990. Tejo was ordained a Zen priest in 1981 and received transmission in 1989. In addition to training with Katagiri Roshi in Hokyoji in Minnesota, Tejo also received formal training at Tasahara Zen Mountain Center in California and Hoshinji in Obama, Japan. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Tejo, I was reading an article, uh, or it was a, it's an interview on the, the Great Tree uh, Women's Zen Temple website it, that was written about 20 years ago. And it was written, I think, just as you were really starting it up. And you had been, I think, in sort of the Asheville area for a while. I think you, you mentioned starting the, the, the Zen Center of Asheville maybe in the late nine, mid nineties, late nineties. And so in, I think this article is in from 2002 and you talked about creating almost like a, a convent or a, you know, that you were using the word convent and you were using this, this uh, sort of sacred space for women to come and explore Zen practice and, and men, we're welcome to practice there, but there was like a live-in practice space. And I'm wondering where you got that dream from. Like, how did that come to be? Well, it came about, I guess, in a couple different ways. Um, when I was at Tassahara in 1983, I was having a, a lunch. <laughs> and 
all of a sudden, uh, this vision sort of popped up <laughs> to start a women's temple. And I think part of the reason was that at that time, it was uh, the practitioners were predominantly men. That had been my experience also in Minnesota. Uh, and I kept always asking myself the question, where are the women? Why aren't the women coming? You know, and so I don't exactly know where it came from. Like I say, it didn't happen during meditation or anything. It happened during lunch. And all of a sudden, I just knew I had to do that. And this was in 1983. It took me a long time before I felt like I could do that. And probably the reason that the idea of a convent came up was because when I was five years old, I decided I wanted to be a Catholic nun. And I went to Catholic schools all my life, and I went to the convent after high school, and I left. I was 21 when I left. But... Oh, you went to, you went into a convent to become a Catholic nun? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay, When I was young. Yes, because that's what I always wanted to do. Mm. Um, When I left the convent, I, I, you know... I was completely at a loss because I had never really wanted to do anything else. Um, and so I, um, I, I was a junior in college, so I went to the first non-Catholic school <laughs> I ever had, which was the University of Minnesota. I was, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so, um, you know, things changed a lot for me when I got into the public school system and outside of the Catholic world. And over the next several years, one of the things I always said, if I didn't become a nun, if I ever left the convent, I said I would become a dancer. So as soon as I got to the university, I started studying dance. And I studied a lot of dance during my 20s. And that was really important to me. Um, Well, I won't even go into the details of that. But one of the things I thought when I left the convent, because a lot of things happened, this was in the 80s, right after Vatican II, when everything was really crazy in the Catholic Church, and half the nuns thought that they should go out and do social work, and half the nuns thought they should stay in the cloister. And, you know, those of us that entered at that time were, like, influenced by Vatican II, and at the same time, walking into this very antiquated system. So when I left... I remember thinking when I was on the airplane, I should start my own convent. And then I immediately said, oh, no, I'm not qualified to do that. And I just kind of put it aside. So it was kind of interesting that that vision came up for me in 1983. But at the same time, you know, in a sense, you could say I'm not surprised. But I still felt totally unqualified. It was before I'd been to Japan and um, just felt like, you know, I need, I was not qualified to do it. And so I kept it warm in my heart <laughs> for many years. But in the meantime, you know, it would come up in conversations. And I would tell my Dharma brothers and sisters about it. And I told my friends in, in the monastery in Japan about it. There were several Westerners in Japan at that time and at Hoshinji. And so I, I talked to them about it. And finally, when I, moved to Asheville, um, some of my Dharma brothers and sisters started saying to me, when are you going to do this? <laughs> I moved here in 1992. And um, I was like, well, I'm not quite ready yet. 
Then I don't know if you've interviewed Shohaku Okamura, but I got involved with Shohaku Okamura's vision in the United States. You know, he wanted to come to America, but I was kind of involved in getting him here. I had lived at his temple after I left the monastery, after Katagiri Roshi died. I went back to Japan and I lived at Shohaku's temple for six months to work on a translation that I was very interested in, to put it into English. And so I got to know him very well. And I kept saying, you know, he was translating Dogen Zenji. And I said, you know, this, we need you in the United States and you're not really appreciated here. And he had lived in the United States um, for a while, for five years. He helped start Valley Zendo in Massachusetts. Um, well, you may know about Valley Zendo. It's on the other side. I don't actually know. It's it. on the other side of Massachusetts. I'm trying to think of uh, the name of the town. I don't know. I'll look it up. Yeah, Valley Zendo. That was yeah. started. He was a student of Uchiyama Roshi. You're not in the Soto Zen tradition, so maybe you don't know Uchiyama Roshi, who was a student of Soaki Koto Roshi. Um, so anyway, Shohaku Okumura, I, I became um, administrative director for his organization and one of the teachers for his organization for about five years. And then <clears throat> I told him I would do it for five years. And then I said, and then I have to go and do my <laughs> women's temple, you know? And so, right. um, but after I moved to Asheville, also Zen Center of Asheville got started. I was brought out here really by the Charlotte group, but I, I started in this area uh, at Southern Dharma Retreat Center. Um, I don't know if you know about that either, but um, maybe. No, but, you know, Charlotte is not near Asheville. I mean, it's like a couple hours away. Yeah, it's a couple so, hours away. But Southern mm. Dharma is in Hot Springs, which is oh, not so yeah. far from Asheville. Nope. So when, uh, when, I, when I thought about it, I thought, I really wanted to live in Asheville. I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a big city, and I felt like I just didn't want to live in a big city anymore. And I loved the mountains up here. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And yeah, um, I used to live in Brevard, which oh, is not. Oh, also, you know this area. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. Brevard is beautiful. Yeah, I loved right it near there. the Parkway, not too far from the Parkway, and yeah. So, um, so anyway, and then also the person who started the Southern Dharma Retreat Center told me she had just moved out of her little cabin up on the property that was adjacent to it. And she told me I could live in her cabin. And after, you know, 15 years of very intense training and practice, I was just like totally in. Uh, and, and my teacher died and I was one of the main caregivers for my teacher. He and his, his wife and I were his main caregivers. So I was there every day taking him to the hospital and crises and various things. I was just exhausted. And then also I was the organizer of his funerals. And that was a big deal. You know, right. these people from Japan and from all over. And I had to take care of them and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, and she said I could live in her cabin. And I just wanted to be a hermit for a while. So that's, that's what I, when I first came out here in 92, I came out here in March of 92. I just slept for about three months until I finally heard the birds singing one morning. And I, I thought, oh, now I'm awake again. And also at Southern Dharma, there were various teachers. I hadn't really taught much, just a little. You know, Roshi had us giving lectures, and I led a retreat, Sashins and things. But um, I hadn't taught a lot. And so 
I sort of wanted to observe other teachers and take about five years before I actually got actively involved in doing, I didn't really want to be a teacher. Um, or she told us we should be teachers. You know, so I was like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, I can't regrudge the Dharma. It's one of the precepts, right? <laughs> and so, um, so I said, well, okay, I'm going to give myself five years. Uh-huh. kind of process and so then i started going to other teachers retreats at southern dharma because i was just living right up the hill and and seeing if i could learn something how to how to teach <laughs> you know and um so that's a lot of what i did and then i got invited by the unitarian church to come and lead a meditation group there was a little meditation fledging group there mm. and um and so they said would you please come and teach us meditation so I'd go in once a month for that, and then that became bigger and bigger. And so then I finally just moved to Asheville after about a year and a half of living in the cabin. Oh, wow. And that's when the Zen Center of Asheville started to happen. First, we met in like five different places and uh, for various activities because, you know, we couldn't have one place for all our activities. And then finally, as the same woman, the woman that started Southern Dharma, she said, if I find a place, you know, can, would you like to rent it? Because she was sitting with us, and I said, yeah. And so I helped her find a place. And so we sat in a little house in West Asheville for, oh, I think they were there for 10 years. I was there for about eight years when I decided to start Great Tree. Um, and then we looked for a place. This, we didn't even move into this place until 2005. Was when, but we became a nonprofit in about 2001 or 2002. And the person that did that interview also is, uh, she's a teacher in the um, tradition of Sensaki Roshi, whom you may be familiar with. Well, you're not in the, Zen, uh, the Japanese tradition, so you wouldn't be, but he was kind of a renegade teacher. <laughs> I feel like they're all renegades. <laughs> yeah, the ones that came here sure are. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Like even the teacher in the tradition that I'm in, like he, I, I just feel like they must have had something that made them want to go. Like they, they all seem to bring this sort of formal training with them. And yet they all seem to somehow chafe back at home. Yeah. Katakiri Roshi tried to kind of um, figure out what, would be helpful, what is helpful in terms of the tradition. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the reasons I went to Japan was to, because I thought, well, he's still Japanese and how much of it is Japanese overlay? A lot of people in Minnesota uh, used to complain to him when he tried to introduce certain things, like especially at the monastery. Most of the training that I did with him was at Minnesota Zen Center and we mm-hmm. weren't residents there. <clears throat> we all lived, there wasn't space for us to be residents. But Hokyoji, we were residents, but we, had, we were minimal. It was just a piece of land when we got it. Our first meditation hall was a tent, an army tent. <laughs> and our kitchen was a tent, and we lived in tents. It's called, wow. We called it Tent City. You know? <laughs> wow. Roshi lived in a, t- in a tent. And we did that. We did practice periods in these tents at, on this land. It was it's beautiful land in southeastern Minnesota, right near the Mississippi River. And um, it's really beautiful land, but, you know, it took a while before we actually started building. And uh, ha- we didn't even have electricity or um, running water. We, we'd pump our water up from the spring, and it was quite primitive. 
Now, this is like the mid-70s, late 70s, or into yes, the 80s? Yes, I met him yeah. in 1975 in San Francisco. I was out on a search for a teacher, and I, by chance, I, I met him. I wasn't really going to practice Zen. I thought it was too hard, you know? But when I met him, you know, it was all over. It was like, yeah, this is, the, this is my teacher. This is the person I got to learn from, you know? And I turned around. I was from Minnesota. But I thought, oh. I'll never find a teacher in Minnesota. But he was on a visit to San Francisco when I met him. Oh, that's so funny. Because he had helped with the beginning of that San Francisco Zen Center. Oh. So he, they kept inviting him out to visit. And we, he happened to arrive three days after I arrived looking for a teacher. And I got kind of shuffled out there because uh, I was living with some Zen people because I needed a place to live. So... Yeah. <laughs> I just want to go back to the tense for a second. And I don't know if this is just me, like in the bias where I'm at, and I just am, I don't know what's going on in sort of new communities. But when I think about Zen in America today, I, I don't think of people being willing to go live in tents with their teacher uh, on a piece of land. And I don't know if it was maybe there was something to that time. It's sort of late 70s obviously has this aura of this hippie, like, let's get back to the land kind of thing, you know, just from afar, this, as somebody who didn't live through it. Do you, do you think that there was a difference in, or, you know, as a teacher now, do you see a difference in the students then as compared to now, like what people would be willing to do? Well, I think the main difference from my perspective, particularly living in the Asheville area, mm-hmm. um, young people here are very, very into going out to the mountains and camping. That's what they do when it's they true. get a break yeah. from school or whatever. But I think the difference is that um, we kind of got sucked into the Zen world. I was 29 when I met Katakiri Roshi, and a lot of people were much younger than that. If you talk to people at San Francisco Zen Center, they started when they were 19 or 18. or you know. And I was, of course, a wannabe hippie, too. And I think a lot of people came out of that hippie culture uh, and were drawn to this kind of practice. And these teachers, like, I don't know about Suzuki Roshi because I never met him, but Katagiri Roshi was a very sincere spiritual seeker. Mm-hmm. And we were very drawn to that. And for some reason, we're willing to give up everything to do it. I was at a point where I had tried everything I wanted to try and just wanted to settle down and get back into spiritual practice when I, joined, when I got into Zen. And I, I think that nowadays what you see with a lot of young people is that they jump around from one thing to another and are not so willing to commit to anything because they haven't tried everything they want to try. And I found that even when I went back to the convent where I was about five years ago, I hadn't been there for like 20 years. Or the Catholic longer convent. Than that, longer than that, 50 years. <laughs> yeah, the Catholic yeah. convent. Because I entered in like 1965 or something like that. So it's been a while, yeah. However many years it was. And um, I was talking to, you know, one of the people that was in my class who's been there forever, and she uh, was talking about how young women come and they're very, very into it, but they've got so many other things that they want to try that they don't stay for more than a few months or they don't really commit. So there weren't, there aren't a lot of young people even 
in the Catholic convents. And it, it doesn't really have to do so much with the teaching because there's lots of young Catholic people, you know, um, that go to church. You know, you see them in churches. But I think young people just don't have that, that kind of commitment to anything yet until, you know, and especially young women uh, want to get married. A lot of young women want to get married and have children, and I get that, you know. I understand that. Um, but also, I'm very interested in children. We have, we have had a huge children's program here, and I started when I was in Minnesota because I learned uh, spiritual practice when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there must be kids around like me. And there are. I mean, even the, the kids in Minnesota, they still, they're still involved in the practice, the ones that you know, not all of them, but some of them. And the ones that aren't really involved in the practice out there are still, they still consider themselves Buddhists, you know? Yeah. And I'm still in touch with a lot of them, and they're growing up, you know? But the ones that I've worked with here are in their teens, their 20s. And the ones that Warren, from Warren Wilson, the college where I taught, are already getting into their 40s, like Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to circle back around to the founding of uh, Great Tree Zen Women's Temple. So you've been doing this now for 20 years. and Well, since 2005 is when we actually physically found a place. Physically had a place. So 20... Fifteen plus years, mm-hmm. sixteen years, something like that. So, can you tell me a little bit, and just sort of, I guess, to back up, I also have that prejudice, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it feels to be true that Zen, anyway, whereas you is is more male, right? If you look at Vipassana, some of the sort of insight uh, groups sort of they definitely feel like they trend more female or women oriented um but the zen stuff tends to have this masculine energy to it and i don't know if that actually bears out as true it doesn't actually bear out here at the cambridge zen center but that's my stereotype of it anyway and how has it been to create a a women's I don't know if you, I don't know if you refer to it as a convent, but like a, a women's temple. No, I don't call it a convent. I call it a temple. Yeah, I don't even think of it as you know a training place. I, I think of it as a place where women can practice together. What's that like for you know for women who are maybe listening to this and thinking about doing more formal training? Like, what would they expect? It's kind of a work in progress. I um, One of the things that was interesting to me... <laughs> I, I love that you're like, it's 16 years in, and it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, you know how long it... Yeah, I mean, if you read, read the history, even yeah. of the Trappists, you know how long it took for them, you know, what Thomas Merton wrote. And I've read the history of the convent where I was, and how long it took for that to get established. These things, if you really want to put down roots, if you really want to develop a spiritual practice... It doesn't happen overnight. Right. A spiritual practice to me is not a matter of entertainment. It's something right. that we do to find out what life is and, and what, how the human mind works and how we get deluded and 
it's not just a form of entertainment. And so I, I refuse to entertain. As my teacher used to say, he, he didn't like to give us sweet candy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he said, sometimes I give you sweet candy just to keep you interested. But, <laughs> you know, and I, I feel very strongly about that, that I don't even want people to come here who are not on a spiritual quest. And, right. and also the other thing is when I first came to Asheville, I attracted mostly men. Hmm. And, you know, when I, I said, I, I, when I finally said to them, you know, I need to do this women's practice center is that what I used to call it. And, and so you, you know, let me know if I can help you, but uh, you, you know, you can do this, you can continue this or not continue it, whatever you want to do, but I got to go and do this. And so, well, we had to go through a little bit of mediation around that because they were disappointed that I was leaving. <laughs> They're like, mom's leaving us. I don't know. I mean, they weren't really that mad, but you know, I mean, these are grown men, so you yeah. know, they were they were being nice about it, and you know, but they weren't happy. And so, well, we talked about it a little bit. And what I found myself saying is, they said, "Why would you start want to start a women's temple? Most of your men, your students are men." And I was like, "Well, that's the reason." <laughs> I mean, that wasn't really the reason, but. Yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? And mm -hmm. so what I what I kind of have come to realize is that there is a very masculine style in Soto Zen anyway, and mm -hmm. I picked it up. It's just like uh, when you study choreography, when you study a piece of choreography with a, a, a dance teacher, sometimes a, the choreography is very natural for you. It's just like it fits your body and your spirit and everything. And sometimes a piece of choreography, you can do it. And you can learn it, and it's very interesting, but it doesn't come naturally. Right. And I sort of feel like the, the choreography of Soto Zen is not yeah. a natural choreography for women. Not just, not just the actual physical forms, but the spirit. Oh. And I also I found this. a lot that when I was in the the Zen world, it took me a long time to get this, but I would say something that would come from a very deep place and it would be ignored or it would be made fun of. And then I would get all defensive and stuff without realizing myself, without going back to my inner realization or wisdom or insight and saying, hey, wait a minute, this is important. I wasn't taking myself seriously. And I thought, that's not good. There must be other women around that allow their insights to get lost in this way. You know? uh -huh. And when I went to Catholic girls' schools, you know, I had a totally different experience because my teachers were all women and all of the students were women. And so when I would have an insight, I could always feel that someone understood it and it would get picked up and I could take it to the next level. And I felt that I was not doing that. And I said, this is not going to work unless there's women, an opportunity for women to be together and practice together and encourage each other's insights because they understand, understand them. And then we can bring some balance to the Zen world. I like men, you know. I mm -hmm. don't want to push the men away. And honestly... Over the years, the men from the Zen Center of Asheville have been such a huge support. 
Mm. in so many ways, even in finding the physical place to do it. Mm. And so, you know, it's turned out very nice. So I haven't lost my, my connection with them. And I've given them, and now I've given them uh, Okesa's robes as lay teachers to as, because they have kept the Zen Center of Asheville going and the Charlotte person in Charlotte has kept the Charlotte group going since I moved here, well, before I moved here, since 1990, he's kept that Charlotte group going. And he's there every week taking care of it. And mm. so he's, in effect, he's a teacher, right? Right. And people look to him and they listen to him, you know? So so if it, if it were a woman were. And, and I agree with you. I, you know, I sort of have been on, as far as this podcast goes, I've been on like a run of women's teachers because I've just been, um, I just sort of started feeling like I had too many men. <laughs> so I just like looked at it and it's it, out of the last uh, 14, I've had two men and 12 women, which is great. But um, it's, it is, it's interesting to hear you say that Soto well, there's something in the form that perhaps needs to be either retranslated or, you know, reimagined in a woman-only context. Or, you know, something. That's not exactly what you said, but I just, that's sort of what I was interpreting. If a woman was coming to practice with you, is there a way to say how it is different for, for women at, the, at Great Tree? Um. Well, let me say first that I was very, very uh, fortunate to go to Hoshinji at the time that I went to Hoshinji. The teacher that I studied with is now just died a few mm. last year or the year before. Um, but he had a very strong spirit towards meditation practice, which is not necessarily true in Japanese monasteries. The training is more about the forms and the and preparing people to have their temple and, you know, do memorial services and, and ceremonies and things like that. And we, we learned that, um, but that wasn't, the emphasis was really on meditation, which is great because that's what I went there for. Uh, it was a mixed group of people, um, a couple of Americans and another person from Canada had been there for like, 20 years when I got there because they had to keep their visas and they wanted to be with their teacher. Oh, yeah. And so it had, you know, it was very uh, available to Westerners because, my, you know, when I went to Japan, I mean, even now my Japanese is not that great. So I always had translation. And they were allowing women to be there. So there were, there were only five women out of 35 people, five or six women mm. at the most. And both of my roommates, both of my Japanese roommates spoke English and they were there. Everyone that was there, most of them had done all their training and gotten all their certification already. So they didn't have to be there. They came there to be with that teacher. Right. So these were a bunch of sincere meditation practitioners. I couldn't have been happier there. I thought I would last, you know, because I'm so not Japanese. I thought I would last maybe three months. Uh huh. <laughs> and I, I was there for almost two and a half years because I was just so absorbed in it there. And I so loved it. And I loved the people. And, but I also saw a spirit there that I don't see in the United States. Which is? It's very, very hard to put your finger on. Mm. 
But one of the things probably, and probably one of the most important things to me, is the spirit of takuhatsu, which is um, mendicant begging. Oh, sure. Something that was very difficult for me to do in the beginning because I was taught not to beg, even for cookies at the neighbor's house. Right. And so I cried when I first went out begging. But you do it as a group, and you do it for the, for the monastery. And, of course, after all the bills are paid, we each would get you know, a little bit of whatever was left to help us pay for robes and things. <clears throat> but um, I really had a hard time with begging, and I really didn't like it. And But I had to do it because it was part of the practice. So I went out, and we would go out and walk through the streets, and we would chant, and people would give us things. And it's, I started to realize how important it was for us to be chanting to kind of awaken for people their inner um, spiritual um, whatever it was for them. Do you know? Yeah, the calling that lives sort of in all beings, I right. imagine. It was, yeah. And we were told, uh, you know, and my teacher addressed this very directly. He said, I know that some of you uh, Westerners feel uncomfortable because you feel like you're just taking. But he said, we give the Dharma for free. Mm-hmm. There is no charge for the Dharma. And, uh, and this is what we're giving. This is our practice. And uh, the, they, when they receive it, this is their opportunity to give something for the sake of the Dharma. And we don't say you should give this much or you should give this much. We just have our bowls and our bags. Sometimes you get something in your bag, like rice or food, you know, Some, sometimes cigarettes, because <laughs> all the money you know. <laughs> um, all, but most of the time you would get money in your bowl. You hold your bowl up, you ring your bell, and you chant the word ho, which is the word for dharma in Japanese, ho. Or sometimes we went out into the countryside uh, during harvest season, and that's when we received a lot of rice and vegetables and things. And we would go door to door and chant the Heart Sutra or chant uh, this, um, it was, it's the Kuan Yin, it's this Kanon in Japanese is Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kuan Yin is the Chinese. Yeah, yeah, Kwan, yeah, Kwan Sen Bosa, we say in, in the Korean tradition. Yeah, when yeah. you say Kwan, Kwan Yin. Kwan Sen Bosa. Kwan Sen Bosa, yeah, Bosa. Bodhisattva. So anyway, um, so doing that practice, I, I, I had a complete turnaround. And one day when we were walking in line doing takuhatsu, it was like a big aha, you know. I realized that I was walking in the, I was facing in the direction that I was going. And I felt like it was the first time in my whole life I had been totally facing in the direction that I was going. So there was a spirit in uh, just giving in that way. And when I came to North Carolina, I was very fortunate because my teacher by the name of Sherry Huber had been here before me. She had been to Southern Dharma before me. And she taught at Southern Dharma. I think this came from her, I'm pretty sure, the spirit of Donna. And so the teachers, when I started teaching at Southern Dharma, they paid for my travel, but they didn't give me any kind of stipend. 
it was just up to the people who were there to put something in my bowl or basket, you know? And I just picked that right up. I said, that's completely the spirit of takuhatsu. So what I find a lot in the United States is that people say, you need to pay this much. Mm -hmm. If, you know, even I, if somebody asked me to perform a wedding ceremony, they say, how much do you charge? And I say, if you want to give something, it's Donna, you know, generosity. It's whatever you, if you want to give something, fine. I've done weddings for people that didn't give me anything. Yeah. Most of the time people do, of course. And the same thing with funerals, whatever. Right. Do you know, and I've had conversations with teachers about this. They're like, so how much do you charge for weddings? And I'm, I say, well, I do Donna and here's why. And they're like, yeah, but how do you survive? And to be honest, when I first moved to North Carolina, when I came back from Japan, I said, I'm not, I'm going to live as a monk and I'm going to live on Donna. I'm going to live on donations. And I lived here for a very long time. Even when I was at Zen Center of Asheville, they didn't start giving me any like regular stipend until the last couple of years. But of course I didn't have to pay rent when I lived in the cabin when I first came for the first year and a half. Uh, she didn't charge me, but I, of course I had to buy food. The Charlotte group would invite me and they gave me Donna and then I would have money. There was a Donna basket at the Zen Center of Asheville and if there was money, I ate, <laughs> you know? Right. But, and, and so I, I, I discovered, and I mean, I went through a few panic moments <laughs> And then, and there were great realizations behind that. You know, I thought, you know, I live in an area where you can go out into the forest and eat. You can survive in the forest. All I have to do is learn how to do it. And of course, I never did, but I always, I knew I had that option and it gave me a lot of relief. So anyway, that's part of what I'm trying to cultivate here at Great Tree. And that's why I asked Jimio to go to Japan because I wanted her to pick up some of that spirit. And she did. You know, another thing that I think is, is very valuable about Japanese, the spirit of Japanese culture, in particular, you see this in the monastery, uh, is not to be wasteful, of course, that's a big thing, but also to just notice what needs to be done and do it. And not have to walk into a room and say, what should I do? Or how can I help? Or can I help? I was very surprised, <laughs> not surprised, but kind of, shocked in a sense. When I came back to America after two and a half years, I right, went right to our monastery and they were doing some building down there. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll cook for you. And people would walk into the kitchen and the place would be totally stacked with dishes and dirty pots and pans and things. And they'd say, is there anything I can do? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, look around. <laughs> And I tried to kind of add that into the training at the monastery at, at Hokyoji. I say, you know, when I was leading, I would say, okay, here's what we're going to do for our work period. You know, you're assigned to this area and I want you to just look and see what needs to be done and do it. You know? So I think this is a really important practice, this practice of watching and learning. Not just that, you know, I was... Recently, I was, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was out in, in uh, um, California for a teacher's meeting. And this is pe people who have been certified by the Japanese, not necessarily the people that have trained there, but they have somehow been certified by the Japanese. And a lot of us have trained in Japan. But the, the Sokan, who is the head of the practice in the United States, uh, was teaching a ceremony. He's very, very 
knowledgeable about this. And so he was teaching us all the little details of the ceremony and what things have changed and everything. And somebody spoke up and said, oh, we need to make a book. Will you help us make a book? And he paused and he said, yes, you can make a book. But the way to really learn this is to watch. And I think that's a very important thing. You know, they would not tell me if I walked into a work period and said, what should I do? It was like they didn't know to tell me. They didn't know how to tell me. I don't know if that's Japanese or if it's a monastic thing or what. But I really, I think that's a really important thing. It's, a, it's really a practice of mindfulness. So that's part of what I, I'm trying to get here. But the other thing is, I, you know, and I find that I, I have... I gleaned a lot from my time in the, in the convent, and I went back and I talked at length to one of the people that was in my group. You go through with certain people. You start together and you kind of go through with certain people. So she was in my original group, and she told me about all the things that have changed and the way that, you know, they've gone through a lot of mediation and tried to figure things out and, and get to know each other and everything. And but I know that there were a lot of things in the spirit of the convent that I, I want to apply. I mean, for one thing, when people live together, there are certain things that you have to be aware of, like public spaces, group spaces, and not to leave your stuff around, you know, and stuff like that. Just very basic things about to agree how to keep things clean and stuff like that. And other than that, I sort of feel like, you know, maybe starting with the forms and the things that I've used, starting with Soto Zen, what I've been trained in, um, then tweak it and see what things really don't seem like they're that valuable in terms of what we learn from the tradition or what really helped the spirit of practice and what things really do. And that's, that's, for me, that's part of the exploration. So I feel like it's a, it's a process of not just um, finding out what is feminine in this practice or what can be expressed as feminine, but also what can we take from the tradition, which has its value, which really can support this practice, and what, what needs to be kind of set aside and what needs to be brought to it what needs to be brought to this practice in order to meet the needs of contemporary life and to address the needs of contemporary life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Reverend Tejo Munich encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Great Tree Zen Women's Temple at greattreetemple.org and I'll include a link to the temple in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the Online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.